Uh, if you would, I want to ask you, grab your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 3. And that's where we're going to be uh, in our time together. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3. And we've kind of been in a, in a series of messages the past month, I would say, uh, walking through Romans chapters 1 through 3. And the text we find ourselves in this morning is Romans 3, starting in verse 21. And while you're turning there, while you're finding your place there, I want to put before you perhaps uh, a truth that uh, I, I'm hopeful you've contemplated, but, but maybe not. The single greatest question that every single person in the world must answer. What do you think that is? What would be the single greatest question that every man and every woman and every child in the world must answer? It doesn't matter <clears throat> their background, where they come from. How can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? And if you've never asked that question, this Easter morning is a good time to do so. So really, I would like for you to ask yourself that question. Don't hear me say it. Insert your name. How can blank be right with God? How can Cody be right with God? Now insert your name. How can... Be right with God. Ask yourself that question. Now, how do you answer that? I've been around long enough to know that how you answer that question will be dependent on one or two things. Uh, your view of God or your view of yourself. Uh, for some, God is a cosmic Santa Claus. He exists to make sure life goes well. He doesn't really ask that much of us as long as we give him the occasional wink and nod and all is fine, all is well. I don't think too much about him. He doesn't influence my decisions or anything, but he's there when I need him. Or for ha- perhaps for, for others, it, it's a combination of your view of God and view of self. Uh, maybe in your mind you see yourself as a relatively good person. You'd be the first to admit you're no Mother Teresa, but you're no Ted Bundy either. You're kind of, it's in that sweet middle spot where you find yourself, relatively good. Small sin doesn't really bother you, or, or God for that matter. He knows that you're human, and He understands, and sin is no big deal. I mean, there's still a heaven, and that's where relatively good people go. Maybe the question... How can I be right with God is a foreign concept to you this morning. And I would say the reason that would be is because you've never understood that there's something wrong with you and God. There's something wrong. So what we've done the past few weeks in Romans 1 and through 3 is we've seen that we need to be made right. Or or we've seen that the why of why we need to be made right. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we have been preaching through Romans 1 through 3, and we're trying to understand why Easter matters. That's been the the question that's been uh, leading our times the past few few weeks. What exactly is significant about Easter? Now, you can tell me Jesus died for sin and he resurrected from the grave, and you would be right. But is that all there is, right? And what we've seen the past two weeks in particular is the reality of God's wrath towards sin. God's wrath. 
In fact, hold your spot in Romans 3 and look at 118. Romans 118 is where Paul begins this section all the way down to chapter 3 and verse 20. And I want you to hear this. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that serves as the heading all the way down to chapter 3, verse 20. You know, I said a couple weeks ago that if we were to give our character descriptions of God, I don't know that there's many of us that would want to start with wrath. We like 1 John 3, God is love. Well, what about 118? God has wrath. It's just as true. And we have to deal with it. God's wrath, I want you to know, is not His unrestricted, kind of blow-off-the-lid anger. He's not, as mu- He's not emotional as we are. No, God's wrath is His righteous and just punishment of sin. What is His wrath revealed against, according to verse 18? Unrighteousness and ungodliness. It's sin. Now look at chapter 3, verse 9. This is where we started last week. So if God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness, then we have to ask the question, who is unrighteous and who is ungodly? Look at verse 9. What then? Are we better off? No, not at all. We have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All, Jews and Gentiles, all are under sin. All have unrighteousness and ungodliness, which means all are under the wrath of God. And what we saw last week in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3 is that Paul puts humanity on trial, and we will all stand in this courtroom. He puts us on trial in verses 9 through 20. And we all are brought in to stand before God the judge in his divine courtroom. And I want you to see verses 19 and 20. Because 19 and 20 is what really matters in any case. It's the verdict. And I want you to hear it. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth, so again, this is everybody, all. Every single mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That word accountable means to be found guilty. Everybody will be found guilty before God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That's righteous in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The verdict is in, and we're guilty. And in fact, we're so guilty that verse 19 says, when we are given the chance to speak, what does it say happens to our mouths? It's hushed. There's no defense to give. There's nothing to say. The evidence is so overwhelming that when it comes our time to defend ourselves, we have nothing to say. Hebrews 9.27 says this. says, it is appointed that every person die and then 
face judgment. This is very bad news. Very, very bad news. I work part-time as a hospice chaplain. Uh, Some of you may not have been aware of that. Uh, I see death a lot. I go to a lot of funerals, and I preach a lot of funerals. And here's what I know. It's coming. You are closer to it now than you were five seconds ago. It's coming. And it is not a respecter of persons. I've seen it happen to the poor. I've seen it happen to the rich. I've seen it happen to the old. I've seen it happen to the young. It happens to Ted Bundy, but it also happens to Mother Teresa. And it will happen to you. And when that day comes, how you answer the question this morning, how can I be right with God, will matter immensely. And that's what this passage we're looking at this Easter morning is in the Bible for. It is in the Bible to tell you how to be made right with God. It's what it's here for. I want you to see it and to feel it. Because Romans 3, 21 through 26 is God's response to our sin. It's His response to His wrath towards our sin. The title of the message this morning is Jesus in my place. And Easter matters because it tells us this. Jesus has stood in our place in order to make us right with God. That's what Easter says. We are made right with God only by faith in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for sin. If you would, look at verse 21 and let's read it together. And it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank You for the words that we just read. Lord, that the response You have against our sin and against Your wrath towards our sin is what verse 25 says. As You put forward Jesus as propitiation. Lord, that through Jesus You offer to redeem. That through Jesus You offer to justify. Lord, that you've placed Jesus where we deserve to be and you give us what Jesus has earned. Lord, this Easter, make these truths weigh on us. The most important question any of us will stand to answer is, am I right with God? Nothing else will matter when that time comes. We have an opportunity now through this passage, through the work of Jesus, 
to rest assured that it is finished. Help us see it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm hopeful that after the recap of what we've seen to where we started reading in verse 21, that, that you felt something. Because it's been said that this paragraph, 21 through 26, is the greatest paragraph ever written in language. Ever written. In verses 19 through 20, we saw earlier that we are guilty, we are held accountable, and we will not escape. We will not have a defense to say. And none are right in His sight. But did you notice the first two words of verse 21? But now. But now. There's hope breaking through. God Himself has intervened into the hopeless condition of human sin. And there is great truth contained in this little phrase. So much so, the difference in heaven and hell hangs on the meaning of these two words. God's response to our unrighteousness and our belittling His glory is not to leave us on our own and throw us into hell. Instead, He intervenes. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You know, God intervenes through Jesus Christ. In my study this week, I found it interesting. In Romans 1... Verses 1 through 17. Do you know how many times Paul refers to Jesus? I counted. It's eight. In those 17 verses, Paul makes mention of Jesus eight times. Do you know how many times he makes a reference to Jesus in Romans 1.18 to Romans 3 verse 20? None. None. He makes all the difference. He does. When it comes to being right with God, when it comes to be to our relationship with God, He makes all the difference. Outside of Him, you are lost. And you're condemned. And you're under wrath. But in Him, what we just read is that we are Righteous, justified, redeemed, favored, and defended. And in fact, that's the outline for our time together. Uh, There's five things that Jesus does for us when He takes our place. And I want you to see those. The first thing is this, looking 21 through 23. He's our righteousness. He's my righteousness. He says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested. That word manifested means to be revealed, to uncover. He's been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Twice in these verses, the righteousness of God is mentioned. And we've got to talk about that. What does that refer to? In these verses, Paul's pointing back to Romans 1.17, where he mentions that the, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. Here's the big idea. 
God's righteousness is his gift of giving right standing before him. So question, what's the key to standing right before God? Receiving a righteousness manifested apart from the law. Do you see it? That's the, that's the point. The righteousness of God is his saving initiative that he has taken to give sinners a righteous status in his sight. Now he's done this apart from the law. Now what does that mean? That our ability to be righteous in his sight through what we can do ain't going to cut it. We have to have another righteousness outside of the law. And it's been given in Jesus. In verse 22, he says what? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Instead of our ability to make ourselves righteous, we receive righteousness through our faith in Jesus. We get our righteousness from Him. Our right standing before God comes from Jesus Christ. Now, how does that happen? Uh, just write it down. You don't have to turn there. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this. It says, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that we, sinners, might become the righteousness of God. You catch that? God makes Jesus to be sin so that sinners can be righteous. On the cross, God transfers our sin and His wrath towards our sin, and He points it towards Jesus. And when He does that, when we receive Jesus by faith, guess what we get? His righteousness. God removes our sin... He removes our unrighteousness and He wraps us in the cloak of Jesus' righteousness. That's good news. God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. We lose our unrighteousness the moment we step into Jesus. And we get everything good He's ever done into our account. Now there's two things about this righteousness that Paul says here. What's the first one? He says, the righteousness of God through faith. Through faith. This righteousness can only be received by faith. Even though God has done this, and I want you to, we'll see it in a moment, it is available to every single sinner. Does that mean that every single sinner will escape the wrath of God? It doesn't, does it? Not every person is saved. So, what is it that makes the difference? How is it that we get the right standing with God? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Right standing with God is only available by faith. What is faith? The Greek word means trust. It means confidence. It is a confident hold that we take on to Jesus as our only hope for salvation. It is a firm commitment of our lives to Him, which means a couple things. It's more than just head knowledge about God. A while ago when I said, what's the significance of Easter, that Jesus died on a cross and that He rose from the grave? Satan knows that, and it won't save him. Just because you can tell me what Easter is about don't mean it will save you. 
You got to receive by trust, a firm commitment of our lives to Jesus. More than head knowledge, it's more than emotional feelings of conviction, it's more than just affections for, for Jesus. It is a deep trust and a giving all of our lives over to Him. So that's one thing about this righteousness. It has to be received by faith. What's the second thing? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It is available to everyone. It's available to everyone. Paul says right standing is available to all who believe. Why? Because all have sinned. And there's no distinction. You know what a a distinction is? It's a criteria you can use to differentiate between people. That's what distinctions are. There are no distinctions. There are no good versus bad people. There are none. Everybody is sinful. But that's good news because God gives His righteousness to sinful people. In fact... God's righteousness is only for sinful people. So, what does that mean? Don't despair about how bad you are. (laughs) Don't, Don't despair about how bad you've been. There is righteousness available to you by faith. That also means don't be too confident about how good you are. Your righteousness, it's not enough. Every single one of us falls short of God's glory. That's what this says. What does that mean? We don't give Him the honor and the the praise. That word glory means weight. He doesn't have enough weight in our lives to influence us. And we all do that. Every one of us. We read in Isaiah 53 what? No one understands. Everyone has turned their own way. That's the essence of sin. It's a turning away from God's way and a turning to our own way, and we all do it. John Stott said this, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Isn't that what happened in the garden? Instead of being content with their relationship with God, what? They wanted to be God. They wanted to be like Him. That was the temptation. That's the essence of sin. Doing our own way. It's us substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. So that's the first thing. We receive a righteousness. Second thing Jesus does when he takes our place... He's our justification. Look at 24. And we are justified by His grace as a gift. Now, now we said in chapter 3 last week that Paul's building this case in a courtroom. This word justified is actually courtroom language. It's a legal term. And Paul has brought us back into the courtroom. And we said last week that the verdict of guilty is handed down, but something's missing from the trial. Do you remember what it is? The sentencing. After every verdict, there is a punishment handed down, a sentencing. We didn't see that last week. It's missing. Justified means this. 
It means to be declared innocent. It means to be acquitted. It means this, that those who place their faith in Jesus, when they stand in God's courtroom, you know what He's going to say? You're in the right. You're innocent. When God looks at us in court, and He looks at our record, do you know... Do you know he doesn't see our sin. He looks for wrongs, and you know what he sees? Jesus. And he declares, justified, innocent, in the right. God the judge sees zero counts of law-breaking on your record. How? Listen to Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. You know how... Do you know how God can do it? How He can look at you when it comes time to sentence you? If you're in Jesus, someone else accepted your charges. Jesus. He took the record of debt that stands against you and God nails it to His cross. And when it comes time to stand before Him, God looks for your record and guess what? He can't find it. It's taken care of. He's nailed it. And look at how this happens. What does he say next? By his grace as a gift. He doesn't do this because we've earned it. He gives it. Grace is God's unearned and his unmerited favor. And it can only be received as a gift. Gifts are by definition free. If you give something in return for a gift, you've either bought it or you've traded, but it's not a gift. Gifts are free, unearned, and grace is that gift. It comes as a gift. God's grace is His coming to us in Jesus to rescue us. And He declares us innocent. Jesus takes our guilt and in in our place, and in return, we get His innocence. So that's the second thing. The third thing, Jesus is my Redeemer. Look there. He says, we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul, he keeps going on and on and on. So not only are we made right, not only are we declared innocence, innocent, not only do we receive grace, but now, he says, we've been redeemed. Now that's important. The word redemption is a term that was used in the Old Testament as a reference to slavery. If someone was going to buy a slave from someone in order to give them their freedom, it was said that they redeemed that slave. And the picture is a price being paid. Perhaps the best picture that might be familiar to most of us is the Old Testament prophet Hosea. The Old Testament prophet Hosea. Do you, you remember Hosea? God asks Hosea to marry a prostitute. 
you don't know the story, you're going to go, want to go home and read it tonight. All right? And Hosea is told up front by God that this prostitute, surprise, surprise, was going to be unfaithful. Over and over and over again, she would be unfaithful to Hosea. But Hosea obeys the Lord. He marries the prostitute. And sure enough, she's unfaithful. Time and again. And finally, something happens. You might think, okay, Hosea kicks her out and says, go, go deal with it. It's not what happens. Guess what? She leaves. Hosea begs her to stay and she leaves. And what does Hosea do? He goes looking. He searches for her. And do you know where he finds Gomer? She's in slavery. She's been captured and she's been placed in the slave market. So you know what, you know what Hosea does? He buys her back. He's redeemed her. That's what the word means. And you know why God told Hosea to do this? To show how God's people treat him. That's literally why. It's, 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 a, it's an imagery that people can see and say, oh, that's, that's what we do to God. God's people are unfaithful, put themselves in slavery, but He promises one thing. What does He promise? I will buy you back. I will buy you back. And what we just read is how He does it. He redeems us. Though we're unfaithful, though we go our own way and we shun what He says, He comes to us in the person and work of Jesus and says, I'm here to free you. I'm here to buy you back. And look at what He uses as payment. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His what? Blood. He uses his own blood as the payment to buy us back. He's redeemed us. Again, that means he's paid a price. And so here's what I want you to hear from this. Grace is free to us, but it costs God his life. Life of God the Son. He was placed on the cross, and he died, and he was buried... And He resurrected so that we could be bought. Fourth, Jesus my propitiation. Now that's a word, isn't it? Look, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now that's probably not a word that you throw around in casual conversation. So we need to understand what does that mean. And here's the simplest definition and it works for our time together today. Propitiation means a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. A wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Now, we've already said that is our greatest need. Our sin, our unrighteousness, has kindled the wrath of God towards us. And what we need is a way to escape it. We need some way to have that wrath averted away from us. What is God's answer to do it? The cross. At the cross, 
God's wrath towards our sin was poured out on His Son by His blood. By the spilling of His blood, that wrath is pointed away from us. And look who it says who did it. I think this throws a lot of people off. Verse 25. Who put forward Jesus as a wrath-satisfying sacrifice? God did. That's part of the reason we read Isaiah 53 earlier. It says, it pleased the Lord to crush Him. And it comes down to this. He crushes us for our sin or He crushes a substitute for our sin. A propitiation. And He's done it in Jesus. God put Him forward. Which means this. The cross is not primarily about the cruelty of Roman soldiers. The cross is not primarily about the deception of religious folk. The cross is about God's solution to man's biggest need. A wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Think about it for a moment. You may have read this throughout the week or, 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 or saw it on TV. We watched The Passion of the Christ the other, the other night. But the night before Jesus is to be delivered up and crucified, we find Him praying in a garden. And He sweats drops of blood from His stress. And, and, he, and He's praying to God and He makes this statement. Let this cup pass from Me. Do you know what the cup refers to? In the Old Testament, the cup was symbolism for God's wrath. God poured out the wrath that our sin deserves onto Jesus at the cross. And again, look, Paul, he, he includes this word faith over and over again. How do we receive it? How do we make sure that the wrath moves away from us and is pointed towards the cross? What does it say? Received by faith. Received by faith. We receive it and make sure by faith. We must place our faith in the sacrifice of our sin. The Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. We trust Him and we hold on to Him. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus has shed His blood for your forgiveness. We're going to get ready for a time of response. And I have one last, one last point that's going to be included in the response. And uh, we'll pray and we'll have a time of invitation. But the last point is this. Jesus is my defender. I want to show you something in verse 26. Drop your eyes down there. The last phrase says this. So that... He, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As we prepare to respond this morning, you must ask yourself the question we started with. Am I right with God? Am I right with God? Or, what's the other option? Am I still under wrath? That's it. I'm either right with God or I'm under wrath at this moment. And so there, there's two options with those two here, and it's this. One option is this. You can stand at your trial before God defenseless. 
and as a result, enter into condemnation and wrath for all eternity. That's one option. Or, this is one of those but now moments, or you can have Jesus stand at your defense. What does that word say? That He might be just and the justifier of the one who has who? Jesus. It's the only way you'll be justified. To be declared innocent and in the right before the Lord. Faith in the one that's been given up for us. God only makes right for all eternity those who trust in Jesus now. He justifies sinners, and that's the best news in the world. I want to give a quote from Spurgeon. He said this. He said, My soul, sit down and behold the justice of God is bound to punish sin. See that punishment executed upon thy Lord Jesus and fall down in humble joy and kiss the dear feet of Him whose blood has made atonement for thee. The only restorative for a guilty conscience is a sight of Jesus suffering on the cross. The blood is the life thereof, says the Levitical law. And let us rest assured that it is the life of faith and joy in every other holy grace. You want to, be, you want to rest assured that you're right with the Lord? Cling to Jesus. Cling to His cross. Turn away from your unrighteousness and look to Him. Last thought, you know, uh, this is my son's second Easter. Uh, I guess he's been coming to church since he was about six weeks old. In fact, I can probably count on less than one hand if I only had three fingers. All right, how many times he's missed church due to sickness or something. And his daddy's a preacher and his mama prays for him every night. His daddy prays for him every night when I lay him in the crib. There's only one way he'll ever be justified. There will come a day that when the knowledge of God will fill his heart and fill his mind, and you know what he's going to say? No. He's going to turn away from him. And at that moment, the wrath of God is kindled against him. And the only way he will ever stand right with God is if he places his faith in the cross of Jesus and what he's done. I say that because I see a lot of people, you know what they tell me when I ask them about their relationship with the Lord? Well, I went to church. (laughs) My boy's been to church a lot. (laughs) It won't save him. I had a mama that prayed for me. It won't save him. And it won't save you. If you're going to be right, it's through the Son. There's only one way. I'm going to pray.